There are calls for a major campaign to raise awareness of coercive control following the case of Lance Hart, who shot and killed his wife, Claire, and daughter, Charlotte, after he had inflicted years of psychological abuse. Lance Hart also took his own life on that day in July 2016. We can talk now to the family's surviving sons, Luke and Ryan. Good morning, Good morning. to you both. I'm going to ask, first of all, how are you? Um, we're, we're actually doing quite well. We've, we've been quite busy raising awareness this week, so quite tired, but it's been um, a productive week. And Luke, why do you think, I mean, you have such a powerful story mm. to tell. Why do you think it is important to tell this now? Because for three years, I think three years ago, uh, the laws on coercive control were, were introduced, and that was the case of you and your family. That's right. So um, we had actually only moved our mother and sister away from our father five days before he killed them both. We found out on the news app, where we both work in different countries, what had happened. And the first thing that struck us was just confusion, because our father had never been violent towards us. And then the violence seemed to come out of nowhere. He seemed to kill our mother and sister out of nowhere, because we'd always thought domestic abuse was about violence. But it's only since we were in the police station in Spalding, we looked up behind us, and six months before the coerced control legislation came out, and we saw financial abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, all the other mechanisms our father used to control our family. And at that moment, we realised our father's behaviour didn't come out of nowhere. He'd controlled us our entire lives, and that control had ratcheted up until he killed our mother and sister. And when you consider murder to be the ultimate act of control, suddenly what seemed to come out of nowhere made perfect sense to us. And that's what we're hoping to raise awareness of. Uh, Ryan, one of the things I know you've talked about already is, is the notion from the outside looking in, there were no signs, effectively, as to what was happening within the household. Can you give people a sense of the kind of thing you were witnessing, but maybe didn't realise at the time. Yeah, the so I think what is key is to understand that coercive control isn't so much what it's done to you, but what you cannot do yourself. So our father slowly took away our freedoms. So for one, he kept us financially poor. He wasted and gambled money, so we had no money to spend. And he used that as an excuse why we couldn't go and see friends, why we couldn't take part in sports. And over time, we ended up restricting our own social lives because we felt we couldn't actually take part in friendships and society. And over the decades of that slow abuse, we ended up controlling ourselves and limiting our life. And the reason we moved our mum and sister away from the family home wasn't because we were scared our father would kill them, but because we were scared they could never live when they were in the home with him. And you'd left home by this point? We'd left home, yeah, as Luke said, only five days before he killed them. But we found out in the police investigation he was planning on killing all of us for months before we even planned to move out. Because that control over our lives, he could see that slowly disappearing because we were able to provide financially for our mum and our sister. It's a, it's for anyone watching who may be in this situation, and like mm. you two didn't really know no. you were in a coercive, abusive relationship. Yeah. There are little things that happen. I mean, you've mentioned a couple. There was an incident I read about, or a, 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 a form of routine. You're, Daily tea at 4.15 instead of 4.30. Can you explain Well, that? yeah, so, so our father almost created a whole system of laws in the house that we had to abide by. And, and they were designed so we could never meet them. So he always had an excuse to basically just yell at us. So the bus always got in at half past four. But our it's father school from school, bus. right, and, and our father always cooked dinner for quarter past four. So he either burnt it and then blamed us when we turned up and the food was black, or he'd put it on the plate ate his, ours was cold, and he would yell at us. And we just couldn't make the bus get there any earlier. But it was those small things where eventually you begin to believe you're the problem because you're always doing something wrong. You're always to blame. All these things are happening that are your fault. And that's what the abuser tells you. But you were high achievers at school as well, weren't you? Um, you did really well in school. So, and the point being that perhaps teachers, and I'm, I'm not passing any criticism onto the mm. education system in this sense, but it wasn't something to look at. You weren't going to be considered as problem children. Yeah, so that's one key issue we want to raise, is a stereotype of an abuser is not necessarily someone who's violent, who creates those physical scars and bruises. And also, as pupils, we weren't the um, snapping, like, detention um, pupils. We were overly compliant and quiet and highly successful, not out of determination, but because we were afraid of failure. And that comes from our home environment, where we could not fail at home. That wasn't an option. And so in our school life, we were those same kids who just got our heads down and worked hard because we had no other option. 
And I think what is key is we need to change the stereotypes we're looking out for in abusers and also victims. Not all victims are going to be aggressive. They might be if they're responding to physical attacks, but our environment was cultivated over decades. So we slowly accustomed and adapted to be able to survive. And so we became, as you said, overly compliant and fearful. And that made us safe at home. And that necessarily didn't show itself in school in the stereotypical ways. I mean, you, you've both been very brave and very honest. And, and, you know, the way you tell the story of what happened will be impacting. I just wonder what I, I'm assuming that a lot of a lot of people have responded, have they? Because mm. it, as you say right at the beginning, mm. you wouldn't know from the outside. If this is happening in a household as it was in yours, mm. You may well not know. These could be the people living next door to you. They could be members of your own family. You just wouldn't know. And that's the thing is we lived with a murderer for 25 years and didn't know. The services through our family didn't know. Our friends through our family didn't know. Because I think when we talk about domestic abuse, we talk about violence. But domestic abuse is about control. Violence is what abusers use to get control. It's a subset of control. And when you take a step back and, and talk about control, it all makes sense. And I think that's one of the messages we'd like to convey is that in the media as well, sometimes the media are part of society, they assume abusers are violent men who are angry, who've lost it, and they're violent out of anger and emotion. But our father was cold-blooded, it was calculated, it was based on beliefs and control. Can I ask one thing, is that if someone is in that circumstance, there will be people listening to this even now mm. thinking, I, I hear some of the things you're saying correspond with our lives. They might be thinking, what do I do? Do I go and see? I go to the police and I say, do you know what, my dad or, or whoever it is in, in the family, is stopping us from doing things sometimes. And mm. in the head, they might be thinking, it just doesn't sound like much. Mm. You know it was an enormous thing. Yeah. But they might be wary of thinking, it just sounds like we're not, you know, what's the problem? I think yeah. we would encourage anyone with any concerns, not only in themselves, but in their friends, to call the National Domestic Violence Helpline and just express what you've seen. Because by saying it's not that bad, that's what we've said our entire lives, it's not that bad. We kept thinking our lives could be worse. And that's not how people should be living by thinking it could be worse. We all deserve to live freely and happily. And I think if you are seeing some of those elements that we talk about, talk to the experts and raise your concerns and don't just live and um, give in to, to that life that you may have ended up in. And also one thing in our case is when women leave, that's when they're most likely to be killed by their partners. So we didn't realize and actually if you think you're being abused, don't suddenly leave because that can trigger that loss of control in the men. They feel that you're leaving as a rebuttal to their control and that can make you um, in quite danger. There is a great fear to, um, for anyone who is watching who wants mm. to make their situation known um, of the consequences, but also life after. Mm. How long has it taken for you two to kind of get to this very composed and compassionate place? So I, th I think what was key for us was when we lost Mum and Charlotte, we lost our purpose in life. And it wasn't until we started speaking out about a year, year and a half after the murders, that we started to find new meaning. Um, and we started to, I guess, make something good out of what happened. We didn't want our father to win, essentially. Had we just lived a life of regret and sadness, he would have essentially won in destroying our lives too. So what we tried to do is live a life which is meaningful that Mum and Charlotte would be proud of. And I think part of that is speaking out about what we've suffered to hopefully raise awareness. Part of that is how we wrote our own book, Operation Lighthouse, to share our story more widely. And we hope to just go into schools maybe one day, just talk to anyone who's willing to listen to us so we can do what we can to hopefully make sure our story isn't repeated again. Well, I, I'm sure I speak on behalf of a lot of people watching you amazed by your composure. And, you know, it's quite remarkable how you tell your story. It will impact on a lot of people. I think you've helped someone today. You must have done. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. So the clip that you just heard, that was the amazing Luke and Ryan Hart talking about their own experience of coercive control and their mother Claire and sister Charlotte's brutal murders in 2016. Listening to their experiences as boys, now men, helps us deconstruct coercive control and the link to femicide and familicide. It's a case that we talk about in this episode, along with others, 
And so a trigger warning in advance. The content is upsetting. So this week, I'm joined by Dr. Emma Katz, author of the new book, Coercive Control in Children and Mothers' Lives. Emma's also an associate professor at Durham University and the leading expert on how coercive control impacts children and young people. Emma has won awards for her work, and I think you're going to find this interview fascinating and powerful. So let's get into it. But before we do, I should also tell you that I've launched Crime Analyst on YouTube. So if you want to watch us and hear and watch other unique content, including my analysis of the Idaho murders and the case against Andrew Tate, after you've listened to this interview, head on over to Crime Analyst on YouTube and subscribe so you don't miss out. Okay, let's dive into my fascinating interview with Dr. Emma Katz. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And I'm really delighted to be joined today by a very special guest. Go ahead, Emma, and please introduce yourself. Hi, folks. I'm Dr. Emma Katz. I'm a British academic, um, just started a new job as Associate Professor at Durham University, and I'm the author of the new book, Coercive Control in Children's and Mother's Lives, which is a book that I'm getting a lot of very positive feedback on. It's the first book of its kind to explore how coercive controllers harm their children as well as their partners, and also to explore what recovery looks like for adult and child victims of coercive control and what their recovery together as a parent and child looks like. And it's a really important contribution to the literature, but also on a practical side as well. It's not just a, an academic book of sorts. It has real practical application for everyday life. And having spearheaded the coercive control law reform campaign and criminalised coercive control in England and Wales in 2015, there's still a lot of misunderstanding and misconception about what coercive control is. And so it would be really great, Emma, if you can define coercive control so that my listeners get a sense of when we say coercive control, what are we talking about? To me, I think of it as when somebody subjects another person or persons to persistent and wide-ranging controlling behaviour and they make it clear that if the people they're being controlling towards stand up for themselves, resist, say no thanks, then they're going to respond in a very negative way by punishing them, by doing something that's profoundly upsetting and distressing. So after a while, a victim and survivor will anticipate the punishment and will try and constrain their own behaviour and live in a highly constrained way so as not to set off the punishment. So this is not just people being a bit controlling, controlling over one or two things. This is somebody who is being controlling over somebody else's whole life, intruding on their normal levels of freedom and autonomy um, their usual ability to carry out day-to-day -day activities that we would usually take for granted, like decide, you know, where to go and how long to spend while we're there and what to wear and who we can see and who we can speak to and, you know, what sort of opinions we can express. So a coercive controller is, is controlling all of those things about us. The punishments that they might inflict if we are disobedient, if we don't fall in line with them, if we don't do exactly what they want at all times, those punishments may be physically violent. They might hit you if you don't comply. But a lot of perpetrators don't do that. Instead, they favour other kinds of punishments, such as psychologically harming you if you don't comply, doing something that will really upset you, perhaps hurting your children if you don't comply, which is terribly upsetting to a loving parent. Or it might be something economically abusive, such as spending the money desperately needed to pay the rent something frivolous, leaving you in a state of total panic about how the rent will be paid. That might be the punishment. Or it might be forbidding you from taking part in a social event that you really wanted to go to. So as I say, perpetrators will just repeatedly punish and punish and punish until victims and survivors are living in this very constrained, constricted way. Every decision dominated by the thought of, what can I do that won't set off the perpetrator? 
And the perpetrator will have been ever so clever as they've done all this because they'll have usually made the victim think it's all their fault. They've made the victim self-blame themselves. They'll have made the victim, the survivor, think that they are the ones causing the the relationship problem, as the perpetrator might describe it. But in fact, it's not a relationship problem. It's assaultive behavior from day one, psychologically assaultive, economically assaultive, sometimes physically and sexually assaultive behavior. It's not the victim causing it, and the victim isn't to blame. It's the perpetrator creating this whole dynamic and keeping it going. And of course, they're the ones with the power to stop. The perpetrator is the one in control. They are the ones who could stop it, but they choose not to stop it. They choose to keep this abuse going day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, every moment choosing to carry it on. Whereas they could, if they chose to, walk away and stop it. So it's a pattern. We know that. It's over a course of time, and it's insidious. And I always use the image of the spider's web, you know, because it's invisible to a lot of people. And as you describe, oftentimes the victim doesn't even know that this level of insidious and intrusive control is a part of their lives. It can be done very subtly, can't it, in pseudo-caring behaviour. And that entrapment, that's why I liken it to the spider's web, because it's an entrapment and an exploitation and domination of one over another. But often we see isolation, serious levels of isolation. So there's a lot of misconception about what it is. I still keep hearing people talk about psychological and emotional abuse, that that is coercive control. That's a subset set of tactics, isn't it, that a perpetrator who's trying to dominate and control every aspect of a person's life. It is about that entrapment. It's not just about being mean. And I think that's quite an important thing for people to understand. And when there are children involved, well, let's let's talk about children because oftentimes people think, well, it might be happening to mum, but the child is okay. They're a good father. Can you talk to that, please, Emma? Absolutely. So predominantly coercive control is perpetrated by men against women. So most of the time we are talking about fathers as perpetrators and mothers as victims and survivors. But in a smaller number of cases, it can happen in in different scenarios to that one. But let's go with the father as the perpetrator, as that is by far the most common scenario. So he's not a good dad because, first of all, if you are highly controlling of your child's other parent to the point where they are living in a state of hypervigilance, distress, um, oftentimes fear of they're, they're constantly concerned, worried, monitoring, constraining themselves, then they can't be the parent that they were meant to be. They can't be the loving and protective parent that they would have been had their partner not turned out to be an abuser. So first off, you're damaging your child's other parent. How can that make you a good parent? Your child needs the other parent to to be able to parent in the loving and protective ways that they would have done um, had this not all happened. So there's that for starters. But furthermore, if you're imposing a regime of coercive control, that regime will permeate the whole household. So for example, If dad insists that mum has to be at home from 5pm in the evening, that she can't go out in the evening, but the children have the opportunity to play sports, do an after-school club with their friends, but that finishes at 6, those children can't go to that club because mum can't pick them up, especially if they're younger and they're reliant on somebody to come and pick them up, or if it's far away, you know, and, and they need to be driven about. If dad's not willing to do that work, and most perpetrators aren't willing to do that sort of thing, then mum won't be able to take them, so they're not going. If mum can't go and see her own family, her own friends, because there's this huge backlash from from dad whenever she does that, the children are also not going to see their maternal family, and they're also not having the opportunity to interact with their mum's friends, who could be lovely adults, role models, people who bring great things into the children's lives. That's all cut off for the children. And then if mum has to do an extremely good job on the housework, and if, if, you know, if anything's out place and the perpetrator punishes, then mum has to prioritise that over playing with the children. 
Um, perpetrators often are very keen to attack the mother-child relationships of the mothers and the children because if those mothers and children are close to each other, supportive with each other, that is a threat to the perpetrator's dominance over the mother, over the home, over the family. Any kind of supportive relationship between mum and the children or even between the children as brothers and sisters, that's a threat to the perpetrator's power, control and dominance because they might get together and support each other against him. So those relationships get attacked, people get turned against each other, people get manipulated. Um, Mum is often told she can't play with the children, she can't, you know, she can't have a laugh with them, she can't spend time with them whenever she tries. She's called away, she's told she must do something else instead. The children often can't even move about the home freely. You know how children like to run about, make mess, laugh, shriek. Often all of that is shut down because there are times when the perpetrator doesn't want to hear a sound. He's not in the mood. Most parents, of course, have to put up with their children being noisy even when they're not in the mood. But the perpetrator won't tolerate that. He will punish everyone if there's noise while he's not in the mood. Punish them really severely, psychologically, harmfully punish them. So the children are shut down, they're being quiet, they're trying to blend into the wallpaper, they're trying to keep on the perpetrator's good side. That looks different on different days, even at different hours. Sometimes he wants them to be quiet, not speak up, have no needs, pretend they don't exist. So they have to do that. But sometimes he wants to play the great dad. He wants to put on a show for the neighbours, the community, interact with them and have them seem like they love and adore him. So they have to switch into that mode whenever he wants it. But then they have to remember when to switch back into disappearing and non-existing when he's had enough of them. So the children are profoundly affected in multiple different ways. There is, there's no way that you can be a coercive controller and a good parent at the same time. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus and keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between, like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free, made with clean, skin loving ingredients, high performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra hydrating and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, 
you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 20% off your first order. Yes, and whilst you're talking, I'm just getting that real sense, and you can't really emphasize it enough, that, you know, a child or the primary victim, well, they're walking on eggshells. They're constantly looking for signs and cues for how they should behave rather than just being. And that's really corrosive, isn't it, to the soul and to children's psychosocial development. What uh, I know from your from your work, you've studied 15 families and you've deep dived into the impact of coercive control on children. What are some of the things that you identified of the factors and the impact that it has on children when they're living like this? There's so many different ways this can go. It really depends on exactly what is happening in the family. But we do know that in general, children who are living in these kinds of scenarios are depressed, anxious. Sometimes they're really struggling in school. They're finding it very difficult to concentrate often. They're often misdiagnosed with ADHD because they're so full of adrenaline, they can't sit still and they can't concentrate. But it's because they're living in a scary high danger environment and so their, their adrenaline's always pretty high it really does vary some children seem to be able to stay really close with that the victim survivor parent and keep a good relationship with that parent going which i think is a really good thing because that that parent is is often not always but often a loving and protective parent who is doing their best for the child um, and remember that the victim survivor parent never asked a parent in these circumstances. They had no idea when they when they first met the perpetrator how this was all going to go. And they were slowly and insidiously entrapped. So they're doing the best they can in these very difficult conditions the perpetrators created. But yeah, children, they sometimes they're able to stay close with their with their victim survivor parent. Other times they seem to align strongly with the perpetrator as they've calculated that's their best chance of survival. That's where the power lies, better stay on his good side. And so they come to learn all his tactics for abuse and start to implement them themselves. They start to almost become like a mini version of the perpetrator in some ways, uh, which can be terribly upsetting for, for the victim and survivor and, and for other siblings as well, who, who can then be abused by that child. Some children are very attuned to what's happening. They know exactly what's happening. They understand that the perpetrator is an abuser. They don't like the perpetrator, which is very reasonable and rational because this is not somebody who's who's a good person. This is an abuser. So we want children to dislike abusers, of course. We seem to have a hard time with that when the abuser they don't like is their parent and suddenly we seem to want them to like that parent as a society, as a culture. But I think it's a good thing if children don't like abusive parents because they're having the right response. You know, um, abusers are people who we should be wary of and we should be suspicious of and, and we shouldn't enjoy being in the company of abusers necessarily. But for other children, they're very confused about what's happening. The abuser's being very covert in what they're doing, very careful, very subtle, very manipulative. And so they don't see how abusive the abuser is. They don't see what's wrong with the abuser's behavior. They're confused. Perhaps they're copying the abuser's behavior, being drawn into it. The abuser will often get the children to act as agents of the abuse. You know, they will say, kick mummy. They will encourage the child to call mummy nasty names. They will encourage the children to spy on mummy post-separation, take 200 photos of her a day, send them back to the perpetrator so he can keep monitoring and stalking and controlling post-separation. So children are oftentimes being drawn into the abuse that in itself can be making them very anxious so it's really tough for children to fare well in these circumstances and the best thing we can do is to try and keep them safe and together with their protective and loving parent and try and keep the abusing parent out of their life as much as possible but at the moment our systems tend to kind of pull in the opposite direction those separation and encourage the abuser to stay in the child's life which is a really problematic response that so many adult and child survivors talk about and are very, very concerned about. Yes, post-separation abuse, which unfortunately we still hear people say things like, well, if only they'd leave, as if that would be the end of the situation. And, you know, ironically, the cases that I've worked, the, the mothers have asked me the question, well, I'm told that I should leave, but yet when I do, I'm brought back into the situation through the family courts. So which one is it? 
that I should leave to safeguard my children or he must be a parent to my child for the sake of the children. And mums say it's really confusing and they want to parent their children as best they can, but it's impossible actually with a coercive controller and an abuser. And I think a lot of people still don't understand that, that abusers will use the family courts, they will use legal systems to continue the abuse as a form and a continuum of coercive control and of stalking. And we're only really lifting the lid on on that. And I think it is incredibly confusing for children, as you say, of them trying to work out and I really try and keep themselves safe. You know, children need unconditional love. And when you're, you have an inconsistent parent who may be authoritarian, who may use punishment and reward inconsistently, it's very confusing for a child. And overall, they're just trying to survive. So it has a a serious impact on them and on their psychosocial development. And the post-separation, well, separation we know is a high-risk time. It's actually when the abuse escalates. And again, most people don't really understand that. It actually correlates with femicide and familicide. And I know, Emma, you're aware of the Utah murders that have happened recently where Michael Haight brutally murdered his former wife who was filing for divorce, Tasha Haight, and the five children, and Tasha's mother, Gail Earl, who Tasha had asked to come over to support her, and because she was fearful. And I talked about this case, and I posted on social media, and I was horrified to see a eulogy for Michael Haight that had been written by his family, memorialising him and whitewashing the brutal acts of violence, the murders. And, you know, I wrote a post saying, imagine a man kills you and then he's praised for being a loving father and you're the child and, and that's the eulogy. That really talks to what's going on in modern society and the lack of understanding and the misconception and the empathy that happens, and the lack of understanding about that violent murder was a continuation of his abuse. Now, I didn't know the detail of the case, but it has just come out that there was a protracted history, that he had been abusive to the eldest daughter. He had strangled her. She was in fear for her life. He was controlling to Tasha. None of this, unfortunately, is surprising, but yet he was eulogised as if he was the perfect dad, a loving man, a good man, which in my view, he absolutely wasn't. What are your thoughts about that? I think that narrative of the good father, the family man is so strong that we don't want to hear anything different. It is really bizarre, isn't it? That even when he is manifestly not a good man because he has brutally murdered his wife and several children and his wife's mother, He's still considered a good man. That really speaks to the the extraordinary power that that narrative still has in our society um, and how little we want to deviate from it. So coming back to family courts, family courts also often have this narrative. As As you've been saying, coercive control is not well understood. People think that perpetrators are good people who are struggling with their anger. That's not what perpetrators are at all. They are highly controlling people, highly over-entitled people who believe that they are justified and have a right to control their family members, their partner, their children. That belief isn't going anywhere. Breakup does not eliminate that belief. And of course, when you've broken up, you have challenged their control. You've said, no, I won't be controlled by you anymore, which is precisely why the danger escalates because the perpetrator will retaliate. And sometimes they'll retaliate with legal action against you, trying to take custody of the children away from you, even if they showed very little interest in the children beforehand. You know, even if if the victim survived did all the work for the children beforehand, suddenly upon breakup, they'll find that the perpetrator wants full custody of the children. That's not not because they've suddenly become more interested in in fatherhood. It's because they know that that's an exceptionally good way to punish the victim survivor mother. The perpetrator is looking for ways to punish, whether that's ongoing post-separation economic abuse, ongoing post-separation abuse of the children and abuse through the children, ongoing post-separation stalking, harassment, cyber-stalking, 
um, ongoing post-separation physical and sexual attacks and sometimes murder, murder for perpetrators in these circumstances is not a loss of control. It's the ultimate act of control. It's I control you so much that I am now going to end your life. You won't have a life anymore. Your life will be over. I'll have done that. And you'll never get to live without me. It's the ultimate act of control. All the thousand and one ways they've been controlling running up to that act. So family courts are often saying to survivor mothers and children, well, the last time he physically attacked you was more than three weeks ago. You've split up now, so the abuse must be over. And it's now time to put the past behind you and get on with being two good parents to your children. Now, that is a complete misunderstanding of who the perpetrator is and what's been going on in that situation. The abuse isn't over. The perpetrator hasn't changed. And the reason that they're even in family court is because the perpetrator is trying to exercise ongoing power and control most of the time. Because most, most families don't need to go to family court, of course, because most people can sort things out amicably and they don't need a court to try and resolve the situation but perpetrators aren't reasonable and they aren't looking for a fair solution they're looking to continue to control and to punish and to harm so that's why they've ended up in court as i say in my book we tell the victim the adult victim to leave but we tell the children very often to stay we tell the children they have to keep spending significant amounts of time with the perpetrator, which again is a complete misunderstanding of how much danger that perpetrator poses to that child, what is happening to that child while they're in the perpetrator's care, which is not good. So how can the victim parent leave when their child, their beloved child, the child who they would die for, is still in that situation and can still be used in, in so many different ways? and be harmed in so many different ways by the abuser. Um, so we have to we have to look at how we get children out of this situation as well, because the adult victim can't leave while the children are still stuck. So it's been described by some some victims and survivors as an 18-year sentence, you know, until the children age out of the family court, until they hit 18, which could be as much as 18 years away if you wake up when the child's still a baby. You are tied to your perpetrator to your your abuser to someone who's obsessed with hurting you and that is something that needs such enormous amounts of reform but where is the motivation for that reform when most people don't want to think about this when most people want to talk about how men like the man in utah are good fathers when they've actually murdered their children so if he hadn't murdered his children imagine how much he'd be seen as a good father if he can still be seen as a good father when he's murdered them so we're nowhere near where we need to be culturally in our understanding um, and in our will to tackle this we, as a society we're just nowhere near it and and that kind of empathy for that Utah murderer really I think highlights that but in so many of these cases we end up with this strong empathy response towards a male murderer um, he must have been a good man he must have been a good father there's not just a one-off for example Luke and Ryan Hart in the UK talk about when their father killed their mother and their sister the public had that same reaction that empathy reaction that he must have been a good man reaction you said so many important things I'm going to try and remember and you know just signpost a couple of the major points that you made there you mentioned about entitlement I think that's a really important aspect to underline that he thought it was his right to kill. And I always say, I don't know whether he thought it was right, but he thought it was his right. And when we understand that dynamic, then we start to get closer to the psychology and the psychopathology of what's going on. And I mean that in the sense that men who kill, like Michael Haight, believe that their wife and their children are possessions, that they own them. And that ownership and that possession and that feeling of entitlement that they believe it's their right to take their lives and it ends when I say it ends and how I say it ends is really the key aspect of coercive control, that power imbalance and that absolute thought that it is their right and then other people rushing to their defence that they were a good father. And I did have people on my social media page telling me they're from that community and I got it wrong. He's a good man. He was a good man and a good father. And I asked some of those people about why Tasha was filing for divorce and they couldn't answer me. And it's the very fact that I don't believe people have a right to comment on cases like this and say someone's a good father when they don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And oftentimes, as you said, right at the start, the abuse is insidious, it's invisible, it's 
not apparent to other people because the perpetrator can charm other people and can appear very differently to other people. And that's why it's really important to have these conversations. You mentioned Luke and Ryan Hart and their mother and, and sister, Claire and Charlotte, and the spider's web. Even the boys growing up didn't really understand the behaviour, but afterwards they were so angry about their, the way their father was eulogised by the media and now they've become incredible advocates. But oftentimes the behaviours are invisible to other people and we do have to keep calling it out. And it's not easy to call it out, but we have to stand up and shine a light into the darkest corners of why someone like Michael Haight believed it was his right to annihilate his whole family and how society then rallies around him rather than memorialising and respecting and mourning the victims. And the idea that it can be somebody's right to annihilate their family, that's a very gendered idea. We would never imagine that a mother had the right to annihilate a family. We tend to have this reaction with fathers. Um, and I think the reason why coercive control is predominantly, though not exclusively, male perpetrated, is because the idea that men are in control, that men are the head of the household, that men are the ones who should be wearing the pants in the relationship, who should be making the decisions in the relationship, Um, that if they're not doing, then something's gone wrong. They've, you know, they're being weak and pathetic if they're not the one in charge and making all the decisions. These ideas around masculinity, I think, fuel male coercive control perpetration because A man who wants to perpetrate coercive control only has to take ideas that are already present in our society about how normal and natural it is for men, husbands and fathers to be more in charge and just dial that up a few notches, just take it a bit further and then bang, you've got him carrying out coercive control. Whereas for a woman to carry out coercive control, she has to almost completely invert every message that women get about how they should behave as nurturers, caregivers, compromisers accommodators, sacrificers. She has to throw all those messages out and behave very differently than how most women are told to behave most of the time, which is why, although it does happen, it's a lot rarer, in my view, or at least that's a big part of the picture of why coercive control is predominantly a gendered crime. So we're never going to get very far with tackling it unless we attend to these wider issues of the broader gender inequality and ideas around gender in society, which is why it's really important to keep a gendered lens on this, whilst also acknowledging LGBT plus victims and survivors and perpetrators and adult straight men who are victims and survivors. Um, Of course, they do exist, but we have to keep a focus on the gendered perspective, otherwise we'll never really get to the bottom of what is driving the vast majority of this. Absolutely. And the lens on male violence, the male actors, it's very rare to see a woman annihilate her family in a premeditated, pre-planned, calculated act. And oftentimes, Emma, you'll know that these cases are described as crimes of passion, in inverted commas, which again, it just makes me have a visceral reaction when I see and hear that. That there's nothing about a crime of passion. These are coolly executed and premeditated acts to kill your whole family. And oftentimes we don't always see a whole history of physical abuse. But the cases I've reviewed, and sadly there have been many, what I see is coercive control. And that's why we know that it's lethal. It's an incredibly dangerous behaviour, but often it's missed. The non-physical stuff is not seen as serious. And that's why it was really important to criminalise coercive control. But the link with misogyny, and as you said, the wider um, spectrum of what's acceptable and what's not for men and for women, when we have the likes of Andrew Tate and other influencers, people call it toxic masculinity. It's not actually toxic masculinity. It's just taking what is seen as a normal standard and just moving it along the scale a little bit. I've been saying recently, imagine if you flip the script that Andrew Tate is Andrea Tate and there she is saying that men should be subjugated and exploited and has a number of men that she is putting in front of web cameras, making money from, saying that men deserve to be choked and beaten. And so the same equivalent behaviours, well, people would not stand for that. And yet billions have been watching Andrew Tate's videos and defending him, which tells you again about what's going on present day, doesn't it? 
It definitely does, yes. It's, it's very, very suggestive of what's going on present day. But that's for young boys watching as well. Young boys who are taking their cues from the Andrew Tates and Pornhub and really damaging information of how to treat girls and women. And that's when I heard from lots of mothers, actually, regarding Andrew Tate, that the impact of their sons watching these videos was immense. And they were asking me, how do they deal with that? How do they tackle it? So it's really important to join all of this together, isn't it? It doesn't, the abuse doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not just about what goes on when people say it's a domestic violence relationship. And I always say, no, the relationship isn't abusive. The actor is. Start naming the actor and you get closer to what's really happening. And then we have to think about the grooming messages. I call it grooming and conditioning of what's expected of little girls and little boys. You know, boys not to emote boys don't cry, these sorts of things that give a cue about repressed emotion. But little girls should be polite and kind and nurturing and grateful and quiet and appeasing and uh, malleable and put other people's needs above their own. And that's really important that we understand that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. No, exactly. It's not happening in a vacuum. And that's why we find it so difficult to tackle it, actually. Because if, in some ways, if this were some extreme aberrant behaviour, we'd find it so much easier to tackle. But it's just an extension of much, much bigger problems, which is why it goes unaddressed, why it's trivialised, why nobody is you know, seemingly that concerned about it, or not enough people are seemingly that concerned about it. Because in order to really get to grips with it, you have to be very critical of things that we're just taking for granted, that we're not really questioning and that's tough you know that's a big ask so what we're actually looking at to reduce coercive control domestic abuse we're looking at social change it's not just about tackling the perpetrators but tackling the whole environment that produces perpetrators that puts those notions of entitlement in their heads in the first place that makes them think that this behavior is acceptable then all the systems which allow that behavior to carry on and which do find that behavior acceptable are not willing to recognize it and condemn it and say you must stop one thing that victims and survivors say to me is that they're always told they should be doing this and they should be doing that but nobody is telling the perpetrator to stop and nobody is putting major roadblocks in the perpetrator's way that force them to stop um so the perpetrator is just kind of left to carry on and carry on and carry on while the victim and survivor is told to turn their life upside down and inside out and sacrifice practically everything in order to to be free and escape and have the the kind of level of freedom that, that citizens should have in the first place. But nobody is really willing to tell the perpetrator to stop and to make that happen. Um, and there's still so little focus on that. And as you say, we tend to mutualize. We tend to use this very mutualizing language, toxic relationship, domestic abuse relationship. As you say, the problem is not in the relationship. The problem is in the perpetrator. The perpetrator is the entire source of the problem. Um, they are the living embodiment of the problem. And when we talk about the relationship, it does kind of make it sound, I don't know, I think the way we talk about domestic abuse, we often talk about it a bit like a hurricane or a tornado, as though it's something very unfortunate that just sort of happens and we can't really do much about it. But it's not like that at all. It is people with intentions, it is people with profoundly damaging, harmful ideas and notions in their heads about what is and isn't okay to do, carrying that behaviour out and never getting stopped. So in the UK, the Home Office in 2019 um, had a go at guessing how much domestic abuse was costing British society. They had their best go at guessing. It's pretty hard to guess. But they guessed 66 billion a year. And that's about the number of people there are in the UK. So, I mean, millions, sorry, not billion. There's about 66 million-ish people in the UK. Yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary cost, uh, considering the size of the UK population. But it's not domestic abuse that's causing that cost. It's domestic abusers. They are causing that cost. And they are causing that cost to every British taxpayer. And if you're in America or Canada or Australia or anywhere else listening to this podcast, how much are domestic abusers, the people 
people costing you as a taxpayer? Ask that question, because this is a political issue. What is your, this money is being drained from the economy of your country, of which you are a taxpayer and a citizen of. So this is a political issue. This isn't some personal problem that people are having somewhere far away from you. This is costing your economy. This is an issue for you as a taxpayer. So if we looked at it that way, perhaps there'll be more engagement, more political will to tackle these things. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Absolutely. I can't nod enough, Emma. For me, I've always talked about saving lives and saving money and changing lives and saving money. And that's really important. Language that we focus on the abusers. It's not domestic abuse that is the cause. It's the abusers. So going back to the actor... The other interesting thing is that looking at some of the research in America about sexual abuse prevention programs, and this is really the nub of the problem, is that 92% of those prevention programs are aimed at women. 8% are aimed at men and boys. And that's what goes on routinely. In fact, in some places, there's no prevention program. So you know, having run the Homicide Prevention Unit at New Scotland Yard, that's always what I talked about, focusing on the abusers, holding them to account, responsibility taking and accountability with a fear of consequence is really the nub of what we keep missing. And you'll be familiar, I'm sure, with David Carrick, the Metropolitan Police Officer, who has recently pled guilty to 80-plus sexual assaults on women. 47 of those were rapes. This is the tip of the iceberg of what he was doing across his 17-year career and the lack of accountability, despite the fact that nine women made allegations against him and despite the fact he had two allegations of domestic violence when the Met recruited him in 2001 and he passed their vetting process. That tells you everything that, that you need to know about the lack of accountability and responsibility taking. And he's not the first, he's not the last. I worked at New Scotland Yard. I saw these things happening routinely and I sounded the alarm when I worked there of saying... You can't go after the dangerous men outside the organisation unless you deal with the dangerous men within the organisation. Absolutely. Yes, crickets. Yes, absolutely. I hear those crickets now. Um, And the thing is that, yeah, that the... it's so important to talk about the abusers um, and to try to take some of the emphasis off victims and survivors. We have so much telling people, spot the red, spot the red flags, go through uh, some classes on what the red flags look like, and you know, and then you'll be able to spot it. But the thing is, almost nobody can spot it. If it was that easy to spot it, then we wouldn't see police officers as victims and survivors, and we see that all the time. We wouldn't see social workers as victims and survivors. We see that all the time. Doctors, nurses, solicitors, barristers, MPs, all of these people, you know, who have, you know, highly trained, who who should, you know, in theory be able to spot the signs, but they're not spotting the signs because nobody can really spot the signs because every abuser tailors what they're doing to the particular victim. Although they draw on a common playbook, they do tailor their tactics to each victim and survivor. And once your emotions are involved, once the perpetrator started to stir up your feelings of hope and love and and anticipation and excitement and reward and pleasure, they've started drawing on all of that. And they've started getting certain hormones and chemicals going off in your brain and making you feel a certain way. Then your ability to, you know, think in this kind of cold, logical, you know, is this a red flag sort of way is is severely impeded. Everyone's ability to think that way is. Otherwise, we would not see all the people who are victims and survivors being victims and survivors. This is something that happens to incredibly intelligent and highly trained people because this whole business of protect yourself, think yourself out of it. Is virtually impossible. So I, I never, ever, ever see any victim and survivor 
as in any way stupid, as in any way unintelligent, or in any way as having done anything wrong. I never see that they should have done something and they failed to do it. I think that's completely the wrong way to look at it. The abuse tactics that abusers use work. They work. They're very, very effective. And it's really quite fruitless to try and imagine that we can sort of think and rationalize and train ourselves out of this. The only way that's really going to have any impact is if we create a society that generates far fewer perpetrators and holds the ones that do exist to account a lot, 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 lot better. Uh, That's the way to go with prevention, I think. Yes, the fear of consequence for me is always the most important part if you're going to hold people to account and hold them responsible for their behaviour. And the onus has continuously been on victims. Well, what does she do? Well, what does she say? Well, how did you do this? And why did you say that? And how did you get that black eye rather than who did that to you? The, The language is everything is set up to focus on the victim because it's easier to blame the victim rather than to look at the problem and and deal with and tackle the problem. And when you've got it going on within the very institutions and organisations that are supposed to be there to uphold the law and protect women and children, well, there's a huge trust and confidence issue. And that's been going on for some time. It's not something that's new. But focusing on the problem, which is the perpetrator, that takes time, that takes energy. And we also have to admit that male violence is the problem. And I think that oftentimes there are those who do not want to focus on that for many reasons. Even when I stand up and I talk about male violence, I always hear, well, men can be victims too. And yes, I acknowledge that, but that changes the channel. That means that we now go down a different pathway of a conversation. And if I were talking about prostate cancer, I wouldn't expect someone to say, but women get breast cancer. It's what goes on all the time. Yeah, save the whales doesn't mean we don't care about the dolphins. Yeah. Exactly. But when people keep changing the channel and don't allow us to focus on the problem of male violence, and when we keep talking about women's safety as if women are responsible for our own safety and women are responsible for protecting children, the sole focus is on women and children. Then we take the actor, the problem out of the equation. And I'm really glad we've had this conversation of keep shifting the focus back because there's a lot that we can do. And holding someone to account, even when they're younger and they're acting in a way that is a red flag, their behaviour, we should be focusing on the early years and not just picking up the David Carricks after 17 years and more of abusing women and having a warrant card that enables him to carry out that abuse and people have looked the other way when it has been flagged to them. That is unacceptable. It's the ecosystem. It's the other people who turn a blind eye, in my opinion, that should also be held to account because then we might start to see actually real change and real change happening and the culture changing. And that's what we need to see, isn't it? It's it's a cultural shift. It's one that is sizable and it's not easy. It's not a quick fix, but we do have to see people being held to account. And we know that the rape conviction rates are incredibly low. We know domestic violence um, convictions and the domestic abusers, the conviction rates are incredibly low. Sexual violence and those abusers, conviction rates low. Stalking, conviction rates are low. Well, we have to ask the question, two sides of the same coin. A David Carrick in the organisation, how many bad apples are there? Is it the system and the people that are in it? We need a complete overhaul because I think going back to the Metropolitan Police Service, them saying, oh, we're going to do checks on our officers. I'm like, what the hell? You're not doing that already? That is just a routine thing that should be done. And I think they believe the public to be stupid when they come out with that as their fix to this situation. That should just be a routine process and check. The problem that they have is that women are repeatedly reporting and they're not being believed and they're not being taken seriously. That's an attitude problem. That's a cultural problem. That's a leadership problem. 
I absolutely agree. And I would just add from from my sort of unique point of view as an expert on children and coercive control, that as we hold perpetrators accountable, we need to hold them accountable for the harm they've done to their children as well as to their partners um, or to any other family members who they've harmed. And as David Mandel, the founder of the Safe and Together Institute says, coercive control and domestic abuse is a parenting choice. They have chosen to be a parent and to behave in those ways from their position as a parent. Um, so we need to not only hold them accountable as as uh, people who have treated a partner that way, and I put that in quote marks because there's, there's no partnership there. It's all about dominance, subjugation. Uh, it's not a partnership. But similarly, um, with their children, they're not being parents by any good definition of a parent because parents want their children to grow to prosper to be their true authentic selves and they want their children to ultimately be self-sufficient and healthy and functioning you know to be able to flourish in life perpetrators don't want that so the the idea that they are even parents is questionable they want to own the child they want the child to be exactly who they want them to be not the child's real authentic self they want to control and manipulate the child they either see the child as a possession or a status symbol or sometimes as an unwanted pest a nuisance but they never see the child as what it really is which is its own authentic individual self with its own path to kind of to tread in life and they don't see that it's their job as a parent to support that child in its own personal journey they it's all about ownership dominance control everything on their terms so we need to factor that into the conversation so much more because so often we just forget about the children and i see children who have grown up in this situation as co-victims and co-survivors alongside the adult. So I recommend calling them co-victims and co-survivors. Um, I think we need to ditch that language of the victim and her children, because that makes it sound like the children were not victims. The adult is a co-victim and survivor. The children are co-victims and survivors. And they're co-victims and survivors of the same thing. The perpetrator, who is usually the, the boyfriend, husband, father, stepfather, not always, but usually. So, yeah, I think that's really important to keep that within the conversation, within our field of vision as we talk about these things. Yes, the victim and their own voice, their own needs, their own rights, and them being a victim in their own right too. And when we start to understand that and that they can be used by the perpetrator to manipulate and to control the primary victim. That's what we often see as well. That's why the child's voice is so important. They have to have the ability to talk about what's gone on, but that we actually listen to what they're saying and we respect what they're telling us and we respect their needs as well as we understand risk. And just to circle back to, to risk, having spent a lot of time creating a risk tool for victims of domestic violence and, and children are in there too, what I will say is that oftentimes we do know what the high risk factors are and that women know the high risk factors too, that separation increases the risk and child abuse and pregnancy and strangulation and coercive control and stalking. But we load up the victims with all these things that they should do and we leave the perpetrator again out of that conversation or they're going through the family court system and there's also a criminal case and the two systems don't talk to each other. I see that a lot where women and children have failed. So they're really important points, aren't they? And the, when you have suffered abuse as a child, we do see complex post-traumatic stress. But the earlier we identify it and work with a child and the family, then the better the chance of them going on to lead healthy, happy lives where they can have good relationships. But all of that is about being able to have those conversations, isn't it? And having good trauma-informed therapists who really get it and who understand coercive control. And I still think we're a long way off, Emma, and I'm very grateful for your work and what you do educating people. And I appreciate your time. Is there anything else you would like to say, maybe in response to what I've said or that we haven't covered just to say that I think you're absolutely right. Children 
want to be listened to. Um, there was a, a really good book from about 20 years ago called Children's Perspectives on Domestic Violence. And that found that when children um, were in these situations and they, they wanted adults to take them seriously, and when adults wouldn't take them seriously, wouldn't talk to them, wouldn't listen to them when they did talk, the children, and this is what the book said, felt doubly disadvantaged. They were disadvantaged by what the perpetrator was doing, but they were also disadvantaged by all the adults who didn't want to listen to them, weren't seeing their voice and their story and what was happening to them, and their perspectives as important. They felt doubly disadvantaged. And that is something we need to get so much better at. And when children do talk, we need to be so much more open-minded, not shut them down with, oh, well, you've only got one father or, you know, blood's thicker than water or he must love you really. We, we need to not say any of that and just listen, sit with that with the child, sit with the pain and the discomfort that the child has, not try and shut it down or put a nice little ribbon around it and send it away. Um, sit with that pain and discomfort. It's tough, but it's so important to do that. So I think that's, I would just like to add that. But apart from that, it's been absolutely fabulous to talk to you. Um, I feel like we could talk about this for 12 hours easily, but um, it's been great, the conversation that we have had today. And thank you so much for all the work you're doing around this. It is so valued and so important. Thank you, Emma. I really appreciate you saying that. And the last points that you made, I couldn't nod hard enough again. You know, if not, when we don't validate someone's experience, when we disempower them, when we're the secondary person that we're telling, we can, you know, really have a huge difference and make a huge difference in a child's life by listening and sitting with the uncomfortable things that are being said and not trying to airbrush it or not trying to sweep it under the carpet. And those points were just so important. And I'm really glad that you made them. And I know we'll be having future conversations as well. So I also want to just signpost my listeners to your book. I'll put the link in the show notes. And also you have a new blog that you've been writing. So I'll put the link in the show notes too, so that people can subscribe because there's really good information in that. And anything else you want me to add in, I can. So thank you, Emma, for your work. Super. Thank you so much. And thank you for your work as well, Laura. I'm diving in here to wrap this episode. Well, what did you make of that? Emma's pretty amazing, isn't she? And we covered a lot of ground. What jumped out at you? Did you learn anything new? I hope so. Now, you can follow Emma's work on Twitter, and the link to her book is in the show notes, along with the links to free journal articles that she mentioned, as well as her blog. And do me a favour. If you found this interview as fascinating as I did, Drop Crime Analyst a five-star review wherever you listen. It really helps others find me. And interviews like this with Emma might just save a life. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.